I remember a story of a generation past of a pastor who was away on his summer vacation when he learned that one of the young women in his church had just gotten married. He decided to send her a congratulation note, and so he wired her a congratulation and uh, thought immediately of a beautiful scripture verse that he would like to give to his congregant, this new bride. Therefore, he wired simply this message, please read 1 John 4.18. Well, the telegraph operator on the other end, however, did not know the difference between 1 John the epistle and John the gospel. When she got the message, she relayed the message. Therefore, instead of writing, read 1 John 4.18, she simply wrote, read John 4.18. When the happy bride received the telegram delivered to her house by a messenger boy, she rushed to her Bible to see what message her pastor had sent her. Actually, 1 John 4.18 would have been a beautiful verse, a beautiful message. And if you know the verse, it reads, Perfect love casteth out all fear. Well, she turned, however, to John 4.18, and this is what she read. He whom thou now hast is not thy husband. I wonder this morning if some of you in your married relationships uh, have ever thought, as you look at the eyes of your spouse, is this really the one I married? Is this really my husband? Uh, Is this really my wife? Uh, They are so different from the person uh, I was dating. What happened to them? Where is the real person that I thought I had married? The cute quirks uh, that they had while we were dating are now have become great annoyances. You see, oftentimes, uh, the seed of conflicts in relationships come when the expectations that we so desire are not met. For any relationships of significance, whether you are friends or married, there will be conflict. This is true of deep, deep friendships. Deep friendships are marked oftentimes by conflict. And this is true of marriage. How do we deal with relational conflicts biblically? Because fights will happen. Conflicts will occur in our sinful state. How do we fight well? That's what we want to take a look at this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2, as we go to chapter 6, verse 3. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2, to chapter 6, verse 3, as we continue our study in this book, in our sermon series entitled, This Thing Called Love. As you turn to this passage, as you know, in this series, we've been looking at this book uh, in the Bible. This is God's guidebook to love and intimacy and romance, marriage and life after marriage. This book uh, traces the relationship between Solomon and his wife, and we get to peer into the relationship. And through what the Bible has said, we have drawn out some principles with regards to attraction. We saw how this couple was initially attracted, and we talked about guardrails that are important in attractions. We talked about the boundaries that are important to set up in any biblical relationship, whether married or not. We talked about the values that we must hold on to for God-honoring relationship, as well as what to celebrate when we talk about celebrations, what it is we are to celebrate 
in this thing we call love. And then a few weeks ago, we left off with passions. And we talked about how love, biblical love, is indeed passionate. But how is that passion to be exhibited in a God and Christ-honoring relationship? Now we come to conflicts. How can conflicts occur amidst a relationship, friendship or marriage, based on biblical love? How, How can there be a fight on a relationship based upon biblical love? Let's see as we get a glimpse into the first major conflict between Solomon and his wife. It is well past that beautiful, passionate evening of their wedding night. And they are now perhaps years into the realities of married life. Look what happens in Song of Solomon chapter 5 verse 2. Perhaps the married couples can identify what happens. Verse 2. I slept, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved, this woman says. He knocks, saying, Open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is covered with dew. My locks with the drops of the night. What you have here is that Solomon comes to the room of his wife and knocks on the door. In those days, especially in the royal courts, the man and the woman uh, sleep in different bedchambers. Solomon has been working late into the night. Perhaps an issue came up as he governed the country. We don't know exactly what the circumstances were. But he is wet from the dew and the dampness of the late evening or the very early morning. And he longs to be with his wife. Note how he calls out to her in verse 2. He calls out to her in the sweetest of terms, my dove, my love, my perfect one. Have you ever called your spouse my perfect one? He's a romantic. Uh, But you can also note that men will say almost anything to get what they want. And that is a warning to the young single ladies. It's been a long day of ruling for Solomon, and he wanted to unwind with his wife. He needed her tender affections and focus. It is without a doubt he desired intimacy, both emotionally and physically. He desired it with his wife and desired to be with her at the end of a long day. But look what happens. Verse 3. I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I defile them? His wife doesn't seem to answer the door. He's knocked. Either she speaks, verse 2, to Solomon, or more, most likely she thinks it in her mind and ignores his calling out to her. In verse 1, it seems she is already asleep and has been awakened by the sound of Solomon's voice. So in her mind, she's thinking, I'm already asleep. Let me put it in modern-day context for you. I've taken care of the children all day. I've tutored them. I've put them to sleep, and I'm tired. Perhaps even more simplistically, she says to him, Honey, not tonight. I have a headache. Perhaps she has a point for not opening the door, but she is indifferent to him. She disregards him. She basically blows him off. Verse 4. My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door And my heart yearned for him. Solomon doesn't hear anything and tries to open the door by putting his hand on the door handle, but the door is locked, and so he walks away. 
I am sure he is hurt. He is disappointed. I want you to note that he does not break the door down. He does not get his guards to come and force himself in. There are no shouting words. There are no flying objects. There is uh, respect on the part of the husband, but you can just feel his disappointment. And uh, many married men can identify with this situation. And thus begins the conflict. Verse 5 and 6. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved has turned away and was gone. Well, she feels sorry for him, doesn't hear anything, and decides to, okay, get up and open the door. When she touches the door handle, she finds remnants or traces of the aphrodisiac perfume, myrrh. There is without a doubt that Solomon desired intimacy with his wife and was rejected and spurned. Most likely he left angry and disappointed. Therein lies the major source of conflict in any relationships, whether you are single or married or whether uh, you are simply friends. Unresolved expectations is often the major source of conflict. Unresolved expectations. You expect something, you don't get it. Solomon expected intimacy with his wife. He was rebuffed. He was left spurned. This woman perhaps expected that her husband be more considerate and and come before bedtime and not in the wee hours of the morning. And And yet he was inconsiderate. You see, conflicts begin when you expect one thing and get something else in return. Both parties feel that they have been wronged. Solomon perhaps felt that his wife should have waited up for him. He was governing a country. The woman perhaps felt that he just came home too late. Was he not considerate for how she had taken care of the household? When two parties feel that they are in the right and that they have been wronged by the other, then you have conflict. And that's why conflict marks every meaningful relationship. And it happens just as much in friendships as it does in married life. We will discuss and talk about biblical resolutions to conflict next week. But suffice to say for the moment, we all have different styles of conflict. Some couples or some peoples and friends will shout out their issues, speak their minds immediately. Others won't talk to their spouse or their friends for days or weeks or years. I can't imagine that, but I'm sure it happens. However your style of conflict, I want you to keep three underlying motivations in mind. These serve as the basis for conflict in a loving relationships. It's normal to fight. Fighting and conflict is normal in any relationship of significance. But how you fight is important. And so you can see these not only as three underlying biblical motivations, you can see these as three ground rules for fighting. These are the three things that should undergird your conflict. Verse 6 to verse 8. My heart leaped when, I, when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. 
Verse 7, the watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me. They wounded me. The keepers of the wall took my veil away from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am lovesick. The woman, the wife, responds a bit too late. She opens the door, but Solomon is gone. And so she goes to look for him and look throughout the city for him. Perhaps mistaken for a criminal because it was in the wee hours of the morning. The city watchmen beat her. She even implores some of the women of Jerusalem, most likely her friends, to help her find her husband. What you see in the action of this woman is the first of the three underlying biblical motivations that must permeate biblical conflict. And here's number one of your taking notes. The number one ground rule of your fighting. There must be a continual pursuit of love. A continual pursuit of love. There must be a commitment to make it work even if the conflict seems insurmountable. What underlies your conflict must still be a pursuit of love. You are committed to making it work. And therefore, giving up or divorce is not an option in the relationship. It is simply not an option to give up. There is a pursuing of love, even though it is difficult to do so. When you're angry with someone, you don't want to love them. And yet, it must be there. Because the Bible says so. In my pastorate here and abroad, on at least three occasions... I received calls uh, from either a husband or a wife asking if I would come along as they drove around the city to look for their spouse who, because of a conflict, have taken the children and ran somewhere. And as I would help them look for their spouse and children, as I talked to them, they are angry, they're upset, and yet they still desire to pursue. It may be an oxymoron. It may be very difficult to accomplish. But those three couples are still together today. It is because there is a continual pursuit of love, even amidst conflict. Conflict does not eradicate love. In fact, that is when true love shows itself real. Did you get that? Conflicts do not eradicate love. In fact, that's when true love shows itself real. You remember the story of the prophet Hosea in the scripture? If you don't, I encourage you to read at least the first three chapters of the prophet Hosea. God tells his prophet to go marry a woman named Gomer. But Gomer is unfaithful to Hosea and she leaves him and is in adulterous relationships. And God tells Hosea, go, here's that word, pursue this wife of yours, this wife who has adulterated herself while you have been married. Go and love her again. Can you imagine how difficult that must be? And the reason the Bible tells us in the book of Hosea that God asks Hosea to do is because his life would illustrate the depth of the pursuit of God's love for his people who have themselves adulterated themselves to the world. 
That's why I've said that there must be conflict in any deep and meaningful relationship because it will show forth true love. If you love someone, friends or spouse, even if they have wronged you, do you pursue the commitment to love? In a marriage relationship specifically, Peter, the Apostle Peter, gives us some wonderful advice for dealing with conflict in love. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 to 8, we don't have time to really study this in detail. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 1 to 8, he speaks both to the wife and to the husband. He says to the wife, the unfolding beauty for you is of a gentle and quiet spirit. Note that gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. But then Peter also tells the husbands, verse 7 of chapter 3, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wife. Treat them, note this, with respect. And then to the both of them, as he says in verse 8 to conclude this section, All of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Peter encourages husbands and wives to deal with each other graciously and tenderly. Don't, don't hurt each other. Even if you fight, there must be a continual pursuit of love until you reach the resolution to the conflict. A biblical guideline if you want to fight. You are to pursue love, not to pursue change. Did you hear that? I'm going to repeat it again. You are to pursue love, not pursue change. And that's often the problems of a lot of couples, including ourselves. We want to pursue change. We want the other party to change, to, to be more like us, because we're perfect in every way, right? And so if they can only be a little bit more like us, then we wouldn't have these issues in marriage. But the Bible doesn't say pursue change. The Bible says pursue love. I am reminded of one of my favorite stories. It's of a young bride-to-be, and we're going to have a wedding this afternoon. It's a, a young bride-to-be who was at the rehearsal of her wedding. She was nervous. She had never done this before, and that's, that's good. Uh, you only get married once, and so it is nervous. And I tell all the couples uh, uh, that you don't have to worry. Uh, we'll get this through this together. And she was uh, having a hard time during the wedding rehearsal remembering uh, what she was supposed to do uh, as she entered into the church and walked down the aisle. Uh, the minister said to the bride, relax, just remember three things. It's not hard. First of all, all you need to do is to walk slowly down the aisle as you come in. Walk slowly down the aisle. Second, all you have to do is you walk straight to the altar, up, right up in the front. Walk straight to the altar. Third, when you get to the altar, you turn and you look at him. You look at him, your husband to me. That's all you have to do. If you remember these three things, you'll do just fine. Well, the next day, his nervous bride... Uh, uh, trying to remember these three things her pastor had said. Everyone was seated in the church. It was time for her to walk down the aisle. As the organist played the wedding march, she walked down the aisle trying to remember these three things. And um, perhaps subconsciously, she began to say it verbally, the reminders. As she walked down the aisle, it could be heard her say aloud, Aisle, altar, him. Aisle alter him. And to the chuckles of many, 
All they heard was, I'll alter him. Thousands of bride have walked down that aisle saying the same thing. I'll alter him. I'll, I'll change him. They are in for a shock. Pursuing love in a relationship doesn't mean you will change him or her. Remember, you can't change anyone. Have you even tried to change yourself? Only God can change people. And therefore, the only thing you can do is pray to him. You see, we, we think we have the power to change. We can try to guilt them and force them, but you don't have the power to change. The Bible is very clear. Only God can change people. God can change hearts. And so pray that God will change your spouse or your friend to be more like, not you, to be more like him. Pray that God will change your spouse to be more like him. And also pray that God will change you to be more like him. You see, if both couples are being changed to be more like him, then you have a true soulmate in that. Let God do the work in their heart. It will show forth the pursuit of love in the midst of conflict. I met with a couple in North America that I had met two years ago, and I have their permission to share this. Uh, when I met them two years ago, uh, they were on the verge of divorce. Uh, whatever the reason, their, their marriage was in shambles. The only reason they remained married was for the sake of their children, young children. When I met them this time, to my surprise, I, I noted and observed a very thriving and healthy relationship. And so I asked uh, the husband, what happened? What was the change? Um, the husband told me he had given up hope on his wife and... Uh, he had heard my counsel two years ago to just, just pray for him. And so without anything to lose, he began to pray for her. And it's often a wonderment why prayer is the last resort. But he prayed for her. He prayed for her. Uh, to his surprise, in, his, in her community group, uh, her group of girls, she was invited to a Bible study fellowship, BSF. And so she went and she began to enjoy the study of God's word. And as she began to study God's word, God began to change the heart of his wife. Imagine that. Praying and the studying of God's word changes people's lives. What we've been saying for years on end. It may take a while. But pursue love in conflict. Pursue love, not pursue change. Verse 9. What is your beloved more than other beloved? O fairest among women. What is your beloved more than another beloved that you so charge us? You see in verse 9, the friends of the women ask her, describe your husband. Well, why should we go and, and look for Solomon? What's so good about him? And this gave her an opportunity to think about the good things about her, even in the midst of her conflict and anger. And it would force the renewal of those feelings of love. And in verses 10 to 16, she is forced to think some good thoughts about him. Verse 10, My beloved is white, he is ruddy, he is chief among 10,000. He has a pale complexion, but you know what? His character is outstanding. He's, he's one of a kind. 
that she continues in verses 11 to 16. We don't have time to go through it. But, but she speaks of his good character, both physically and personality-wise. His head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. He's good with his words. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His body is carved ivory and laid with sapphire. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. He is unwavering. He is steadfast. He is secure. Verse 16, his mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. After thinking about some good things of her husband, look how she concludes in verse 16. This is my beloved. This is my friend. By focusing on his good traits, it overcomes that initial conflict issue of his inconsiderateness. You know, when, when we fight, especially amongst friends or, or couples, we only zero in. We focus on that issue. And we use the word always. They're always like that. But she was forced by her friends to think about other things about him. And when you begin to think good thoughts about the other, the edge in conflict begins to wear off. You see, the edge of conflict wears off when you can seek and see the goodness of others, whether friend or spouse. And that's our second underlying motivation in biblical conflict. If you need some ground rules for fighting, here's the second ground rule. You can fight all you want, but seek and see the goodness of the other this woman comes to the realization that Solomon, in spite of his deficiencies, inconsiderateness, he's a pretty good guy, both good-looking and of good character. Why did I use the word see and seek? You see, if we only limited to seek the good, and if I were to ask someone who's very angry, find something good about that man. He's no good, nothing. What happens when you're angry? You don't think clearly. Think about something good about your wife. I can't. I tried. I really tried. But seek and see. There's got to be at least one good thing. One good thing about that person. So that you can begin to see them as someone of worth, someone of value, someone who is good. They may be a terrible person, and there are terrible people in this world. But they must at least have one good thing about that. Can you focus on that? Couples, whenever you fight, you think everything is wrong with your mate. But when you have a clear head, they do have a lot to like about them. Just this week, uh, when I came back to the U.S. just a few days ago, um, I'll be transparent with you. Cindy and I got into a fight about something that now is insignificant. But I went to bed mad, and so did she. She went to bed mad. Problem is, I have jet lag. And so I got up at 1.30 in the morning. And there she was, as I looked over to the bed, sleeping peacefully. And that got me even more mad. Since I couldn't go back to sleep, I walked over to our, my study room and began to work on the sermon and got to this part. 
and uh, it's the problem with God's word. It is convicting, and unless I learn the lesson, I can't preach it to you. So about three o'clock in the morning, I went back to the room, and she was still sleeping peacefully, as if it didn't bother her, and that makes me mad. And so I sat on the bed, and I looked at her sleeping, kind of creepy, I guess, but I looked at her, and I thought, I need to think of something nice about her. But I'm still mad, and she's not awake to fight with me. And so I said, Lord, there's got to be one good thing about her. Thought about it, and I thought about that one good thing, and conflicted with the fact that I was still mad. Thought about a second good thing, and still mad. Third and fourth and fifth, and then I realized the, the edge of what we were fighting about was so petty in light of how good she is. When you seek and see the good in someone else, it, it takes the edge of conflict. And we were able to resolve it the next morning. Dr. Howard Hendricks has said, people get married with a picture in their mind of a perfect marriage. You know, young couples, they go into marriage with a picture in their mind of a perfect marriage. Then after a few trials, they discover that they aren't married to a perfect picture, but to an imperfect person. And he comments, when this realization occurs... They will either tear up the picture or they will tear up the person. Did you get that? Couples come in. They, they, they have within their mind a perfect picture of marriage. They discover that they are not in a marriage with a perfect picture but to an imperfect person. So they do one of two things. They will either tear up the picture or they will tear up the person. And the vast majority of couples, even Christians, Christians will tear up the person. Why aren't you like the person that I wanted you to be? I say to you, tear up the picture. There is no perfect marriage because it is made up of two imperfect people. Don't tear up the person because if you tear up the person, it still won't give you a perfect picture. Verse 1 of chapter 6. Where has your beloved gone, O fairest among women? Where has your beloved turned aside that we may seek him with you? The friends of the women had heard enough. They wanted to help, so they asked the women, Where do you think he went? What's the most likely place he could have gone? Where? Any, any ideas, woman, where Solomon would have gone? Verse 2. My beloved has gone to his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed his flocks, flock in the garden and to gather lilies. Either she knows that he has been there all the time and their separateness, their separation was emotional, so she was just going through the motion. Or most likely, which I believe, she knew him so well that she knew to a high certainty where he would have gone because he always goes to this place, his bath cave, his, his go-to place. Because his character, his morality, his, his ethics, his behavior, it's unchanging. It is consistent. She tells them he can be found in the garden. He's feeding his pets. He's doing some yard work. He's doing some gardening. Now, what I want you to see here is that King Solomon doesn't find someone else to fulfill his needs. He doesn't go to look to have his needs fulfilled by others. And that's why the wife says in verse 3, 
those assuring words, even though they have not met yet and they are still in conflict. Verse 3, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He feeds his flock among the lilies. Even though we are fighting, we are still committed to each other. What you see in the action of Solomon is that in conflict, don't do anything to jeopardize your relationship number three. The third ground rule for fighting is don't do anything to jeopardize your relationship. Don't do anything stupid for the young people. Don't do anything that will jeopardize your relationship. Don't hit your spouse in anger. Don't say things that you will regret. Don't look at pornography. Don't find intimacy with another. Don't justify your action because of your anger. Don't say that you'll divorce them or you shouldn't have ever married me. Don't get drunk. And the list goes on. Don't say, I'll never talk to you again. And that's why you set boundaries for your personal life in relationships. Because in conflict, it is those boundaries that hold. They were both committed to their relationship. And even in conflict, they would not jeopardize their relationship. And we'll see how they resolve this next week. Let me say, it's all fine and dandy. Maybe you're talking in theoretical terms, Pastor. Let me tell you what. This is exemplified greatly in the conflict between God and man. God is rightfully wrathful. He's angry with mankind because of sin. That's a conflict. He is rightfully wrathful. He's angry, the Bible tells us, at us because of sin. We are in conflict. But even in that conflict, what does God do? He continues to pursue us in love. God reached out to us by sending His own Son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf. He said, I'm so angry with you because I'm a holy God and I cannot do anything with sin, but yet I will pursue love. And we see that all the way in Genesis chapter 3, all throughout Scriptures, even in Romans chapter 8, you can never outrun my love, that continual pursuit of love. And then He sought us out and He sees the value of us as sinful people. The Bible tells us He desires to call us friends. He can see the good in us. He values the people He's going to say, Remember Jesus Christ? Do you remember when He was being crucified? What did Jesus Christ say on the cross to the very people who were crucifying him? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Imagine that. Can you imagine that God the Son, God himself, can say to the very people who will put him to death, they do not know what they do. He sees them of value and of good. So don't jeopardize the relationship by rejecting him, by rejecting that offer of salvation. It's the dumbest thing you could do. And so it is, as has been exemplified by God to us, so it is we are to exemplify as followers of Jesus Christ to those we love, our friends, our spouses, that yes, we will flight. We will have conflict because we are sinful people. 
but remember the example that God has set. Pursue love. Seek the good. And don't do anything stupid to jeopardize that relationship. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the practicality of it. And thank you for the reminder even to me. Lord, we all fight. We all are in conflict with friends, family, with loved ones, including whom we should love the most after you, which is our spouse. There are times we forget that there are ground rules you give us. You've set them for us towards conflict resolution. So forgive us, Lord, if we've forgotten. But thank you for the reminder this morning to all of us to pursue love, to see good, to keep ourselves from jeopardizing relationships. Help us, Lord, to keep upright and with good character so we can live lives that are holy and pleasing so that the world will see that there's something very special about those who call themselves followers of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.